0: Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And
1: I'm Rich Firma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to
0: Tokyo. Today, as we celebrate the new year, we are excited to be joined by one of America's foremost experts on Asia, and in particular China, Evan Medeiros, a person that Rich and I worked closely with uh, when he served with distinction uh, in the National Security Council under President Obama. As many of our listeners know, Evans served for six years on the national security uh, staff working for President Obama, including as special assistant to the president and senior director for Asia. He was President Obama's top advisor on the Asia-Pacific region and was responsible for coordinating the United States-Asia policy uh, for that period. Prior to that, Evans spent seven years at the RAND Corporation. Currently, he is the Penner Family Chair in Asian Studies at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. That's a new position. Congratulations, Evan. And of course, Evan also serves as a senior advisor here at the Asia Group. So Evan, it's great that you're here. And uh,
1: today, Kurt, you may know, is a special day, not just because it's the new year, But today marks the 40th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between the United States and the People's Republic of China on January 1, 1979. And to commemorate this important development, we're excited to feature a two-part series with Evan. And in this first part, we'll talk about this momentous day and the state of the US-China relationship. And in the next episode, we'll continue our conversation and hear about Evan's perspective of China's evolving role in the world uh, and a lot of other topics. So Evan, uh, we're really grateful you're here and thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank you, Rich. Thank you, Kurt. It's great to be working with both of you again.
0: Great. Thanks, Evan. So look, we all know what modern China uh, is all about. We see Uh, pictures of just fantastic cityscapes. We see the remarkable achievements of the Chinese people in engineering and software and infrastructure and development. Uh, Enormously impressive, right? But I wonder if you could help our listeners understand this remarkable journey that China has taken uh, over the course of these last 40 years and um, how far uh, China and the United States have come together uh, o- over that period. So, Evan, what was, um, uh, at, at the dawn of this diplomacy, um, what was China like at that time? Well, China was essentially
2: a different planet on January 1st, 1979. It was poor, I mean, dirt poor. Uh, the Chinese people didn't have enough to eat. Uh, they didn't eat meat on a regular basis, for example. Uh, You know, they all wore uh, Mao suits and Mao outfits, so it was just sort of a a sea of gray. Uh, China was disconnected from the international economy, in part because of this highly planned system of economic planning that that the Chinese had put in place. Um, China was still sort of grappling with uh, the vestiges of the Cultural Revolution and all of the social dislocation uh, brought about because of that. And then, of course, China was going through a leadership transition as well. Um, Mao died in 76. Hua Guo, Guofeng was in power, but he didn't really look like a long-term leader. Deng Xiaoping was still there sort of making his moves to try to ascend to power. So, but, of course, you know Deng Xiaoping was the one that came to Washington and represented China. So China was just a very, very, very different place.
0: Evan, so we're celebrating this, you know, 40-year anniversary and think of all the people that were involved uh, in the opening. How, How would you rank this step, the diplomatic recognition of China and all that ensued? How would you rank it in terms of the big sort of tectonic shifts or successes in American foreign policy over the course of the 20th century?
2: Well, Nixon's initial decision in the early 1970s to bring China back into the international community of nations, uh, I think ranks within the top five, maybe the top three most consequential decisions that the United States made. Now, of course, at the time, it was um, the consequences of that were hard to see. Uh, it was a bet. Uh, it was a bet that this was important uh, for the world. Uh, but it was unclear how it was going to turn out, in large part because it, it was uncertain what trajectory Mao and then Deng Xiaoping was going to put China on and how the rest of the world was going to respond. But obviously, in retrospect, it was incredibly consequential.
0: So, Evan, you said, you know, uh, unforeseen. At the time, what were the primary motivators? It wasn't really about, no one could imagine. You know the economic miracle that's taken place. I, it, my understanding is the primary driver was the idea of the, you know, playing the China card, the strategic uh, significance of a global struggle with the Soviet Union.
2: That was part of it. Uh, actually, if you go back and read a article that um, President Nixon wrote in Foreign Affairs in the late 1960s, it wasn't just reengaging China, pulling China out of. Uh, its self-imposed isolation was not about balancing Soviet power. Obviously, that was ultimately part of the calculation, and that's the argument that both Chinese leaders and American leaders converged on, but it was rather about uh, recognizing that having China outside the system and radically opposing structures within the international system was just destabilizing because of because Mao had this theory of continuous revolution at home he was supporting uh, revolutionary movements in Africa Latin America the Middle East etc so Mao was pursuing autarky in a way that totally isolated the Chinese economy from the rest of the world and i think Nixon recognized that the international community would benefit from having China play a greater role now Balancing Soviet power was clearly there, part what of that were equation. The,
1: what were the risks to Nixon uh, politically? I mean, were you know, as you think about domestic politics at that time, things were pretty chaotic. Uh, were they worried about the reaction here at home?
2: They principally were worried about the reaction in the House and the Senate because support for Taiwan was so strong at the time. And the question was, can you alienate key uh, parts of the Republican Party and the democratic party you lose supporters on Capitol Hill for your domestic agenda and other parts of your of your foreign policy agenda by pursuing this normalization, which is why uh Kissinger and Nixon pursued it with such intense secrecy.
1: Can you say a little bit about the role that Pakistan played in this in in kind of bridging the u s into into beijing there's been a lot written about this and Some of it seems like mythology. What's your sense of, of, could this have happened without Pakistani interlocutors?
2: Well, there were multiple channels between the the Nixon administration and and China at this time, Uh, but Pakistan played a critical role. It's difficult to say absent Pakistan, it couldn't have happened because the Chinese are incredibly pragmatic and they they find ways to do things when they want to do them. But the key role that Pakistan played is it basically facilitated communication between Washington and Beijing, but also importantly, it was during a trip to Pakistan that Kissinger's staff told the press at the time, you know, Kissinger's sick; he's going to be down for a couple days. Right. And what happened was the Chinese actually flew a plane into Islamabad. It was packed with a couple sort of key interlocutors, and uh, Kissinger and his crowd in '71 got on that plane and they went to went to Beijing and started negotiating the opening. Mm, fascinating.
1: So, Evan, we talked about this 40th anniversary that's so important, and there's been a lot of signature events that have occurred over these last four decades and a lot of uh, tension and challenges in the relationship. But I wonder if you could just give us your sense of some of the defining moments in U.S.-China relationships and in the, in the relationship and how they've impacted uh, the current state of where we are
2: today. There are several defining moments in the US-China relationship. Uh, Some are due to exogenous shocks. Uh, Most are due to um, events within China. Deng Xiaoping coming to power is the most consequential one. His pursuit of the Four modernizations, abandoning class struggle, and and focusing China on economic development created the political basis for China to be linked to the United States, and he became a driving force in managing the US-China relationship. Looking forward. The uh, collapse of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe in 1989 and the collapse of communism around the world was clearly a shock to the Communist Party. Um, The fact that that occurred only a few months after Tiananmen, both of those, the combination of those events were real turning points. In particular, for Americans, I think Tiananmen was a huge wake-up call that their hopes and expectations for China were really misplaced, and it was a reminder of the nature of the political system we're dealing with. And I'm not actually sure that the US has ever really put back together the kind of political consensus for U.S.-China relations that, occurred, that that was in the 1980s. So that combo of events in 89 really unmoored the relationship, and I'm not, not sure that we've ever re-moored the relationship. Uh, looking forward, I would say the Taiwan Straits crisis more and more is looking like a very consequential event. Tiananmen was a disillusionment with China's political trajectory. I think the Taiwan Straits crisis, in retrospect, a signal to the U.S. that we may have a real security problem. Uh, in East Asia. And the United States is going to have to think much more seriously about its uh, defense strategy in the Western Pacific, in part because the Chinese response was to kick off a major military modernization project to pick apart US power projection strategy. And so I think uh, more and more the Taiwan Straits crisis put our security relationship on a much more competitive trajectory. One interesting issue that often gets cited as consequential in the relationship that I think in retrospect looks less important is 9-11. It was sort of a temporary uh, reassessment of the relationship, a convergence of interests, but really all it did was create breathing space for the Chinese to continue with their military modernization while the US was dealing with the, the war on terror Iraq and Afghanistan. The last point I'd make is the global financial crisis. I think it led to a disillusionment on the Chinese side about the uh, sort of American, uh, the way that the US structured and operated its economy. You know, as Wang Qishan uh, supposedly said, perhaps it's apocryphal that, um, you know, we suddenly learned that perhaps we no longer should be following the teacher anymore or Mm. something to that effect.
0: Yeah. I like all those, Evan. I just nominate one more, and some of these really come into focus only in retrospect. Um, and I like your uh, subtraction from the list of nine eleven, and I agree with that generally. I I I, I might just suggest two others though, to think about. It. I think one might be the Gulf War, not because of its geostrategic implications, but because of the exhibition of remarkable American military prowess and showing the Chinese um, what precision munitions, coordinated military operations, the potential for that. And I think that had a huge impact on the military industrial complex in China. And the second would be in the 2000s. I think one thing that we tend to not understand is that the color revolutions uh, that swept the Middle East and South Asia, I think were deeply unsettling to the Chinese leadership and perhaps triggered a set of anxieties about regime stability and about American intentions that, if anything, have intensified some of the anxiety in China about the United States.
2: Those are two great points, Kurt, completely agree. One other that we could add to the list, I think, was WTO accession, simply because that put China on a trajectory where it uh, eventually became the second largest economy in the world. I mean, if you look at the growth trajectory of China's economy beginning in 02 to today, it really was WTO accession that allowed that rapid acceleration to become the second largest economy. Of course, what we didn't realize at the same time you had the growth of this huge you know, state-directed or or state-owned enterprise industrial complex that was erecting all sorts of barriers and challenges for American businesses.
0: Evan, you will have seen that uh, most recently the British Foreign Office has declassified um, some of the cables from the serving British ambassador at the time who reports on these harrowing, really just very difficult to read cables about what went on during Tiananmen. And his assessment about casualties is much higher than is currently believed, even though there's a range. I'm curious about another question, though. There is one group that says that China has not at all dealt with Tiananmen and that they will have to at some point, there will be an accounting, and there will be some form of uh, acknowledgement and recognition, and that China will not be whole or will really be able to confront its challenges until that is done. There's another group that says, nope, that's wrong. This episode has been papered over, and China has moved on, and the scars from that tragedy are largely forgotten. Help us understand uh, where does history
2: lie? I think history lies between those two, Kurt, in the sense that it's clear that the Communist Party has has papered over and it's doing is doing its best to forget uh, a very, very difficult episode in their history. but I, I think that ultimately there will have to be a reckoning. and I think that there are scholars in the party system that recognize there will have to be a reckoning uh, at some point. Just simply given, sort of the scale of what happened, and you know that could take the form of reviewing the reviewing how the Chinese Party deals with uh, leaders like Zhao Ziyang, who had been kicked out of the Party and marginalized uh, because of his uh, purported defense of the students. It could be about reviewing Hu Yaobang, whose death sort of sort of started. The uh, student rallies that ultimately blossomed into the occupation of Tiananmen Square itself. But I I think ultimately the Communist Party is going to have to deal with this at, at some point. There's an interesting precedent for this in terms of how they dealt with the Cultural Revolution. Uh, it's interesting that one of the many interesting things that Deng Xiaoping did was he promoted a discussion of this within the Communist Party and they came to the conclusion that Mao was sort of seventy percent right, thirty percent wrong, and in the thirty percent
0: wrong basket was the culture revolution what, what a, so in terms of you've talked a little bit about a reevaluation of those that were perhaps as as we would think on the right side of history um will there be a similar accounting for those, and and who are they, that are thought to have been the masterminds behind this tragedy? I think uh, it's possible, but it would have
2: to occur after they die. And, and, the most and who ob- are they? Well, the most obvious one is former Premier Li Peng, mm-hmm. right? He was really seen as the person that was leading, leading uh, along with Deng Xiaoping, by the way, uh, leading the internal... Uh, Politburo uh, Standing Committee consensus on taking military action against um, the students at that time. But I don't think it'll happen until all of the uh, Standing Committee members have passed away.
0: So we, when you talked earlier about placing a bet, right? Yeah. So how's that bet look in retrospect? I think some people thought, you know, there's commercial opportunities. Others thought that there would be an opening. Uh, others thought there would be a inevitable kind of bending towards democracy and representation. How does that look?
2: Yeah. So I, I would say the bet right now, It, it reviewing the bet right now, is interesting because it's coming at a time of fundamental reevaluation by the United States of the US China relationship and the trajectory that China has put itself on. And what I mean by that is I would say that when the US began, when open to China, there was a series of hopes and expectations that motivated policy. And uh, over time, I would say that clearly some of them have pr- proven accurate, some of them less so. And I would say the ones that people are particularly frustrated with is the hope and expectation that as China's economy developed, uh, moved less, uh, moved away from uh, a planned economy and more to a market economy, that that trajectory would accelerate and that bringing China into the sort of globalized world of trade and investment would accelerate that trajectory. Uh, and that clearly hasn't proven to be the case because beginning around the 2000s, five, six years after China do- joined the WTO, what you found was that there was a, a, a group of state-owned enterprises that politically became a lot more influential. And as a result, uh, you had China uh, sort of, y- you had reforms, market-oriented reforms uh, halt a little bit, and the barriers to open trade and investment started to grow. So I would say that expectation about the sort of gradual convergence of China with uh, global market economics, uh, that didn't bear itself out. And then I think the the other big expectation was the one of pulling China into the international community of rules, norms, and institutions um, would shape the way it defines its interests and the way it pursues its interests in ways more consistent with um, US economic and security interests. And it hasn't really turned out that way because I think China has taken a much more a la carte approach. Uh, And especially as it's gotten stronger, it's sort of decided which rules and norms and institutions it wants to abide by and which it doesn't. One area where perhaps Kurt and I disagree is I don't think that U.S. policy toward China over the last 40 years has been based on the expectation of democratization of China. I think actually after Tiananmen, I think a lot of people woke up and were reminded of uh, precisely what kind of political system that the U.S. was dealing with. I think as a political matter, Presidents and leaders had to talk about the hope that China would uh, would politically
0: open. I, I look. I think that's fair, uh, and you know, I don't want to get in an argument about what what we've argued in in, in articles. But I, I would say this. I would say what I, I think the debate about really about China is not about markets or just about democracy. It is what kind of nation will it be on the global stage? And will the relationship, will they view the United States with the United States as primarily competitive through the lens of competition and seeking advantage, or through the lens of cooperation in finding areas where the United States and China can work together, climate change, piracy, whatever and and you know the answer of course would be some combination of both but i think we have tended to think more about the idea of shaping china and that china can be a partner and less about this is a country that is thinking about a more competitive long-term relationship with the united states in which they see a zero sum um potential trajectory in which they will claim more of the global share of leadership. How, how would you respond to that? I, I agree with your assessment.
2: My argument would be that if you go back to the 1990s, I think the the bet was pull China in, into institutions, try and use the discipline of membership in those institutions to shape, shape their interests, the way they define them, the way they pursue them. And as China's economy grows, um, as China's Uh, global interests grow, the hope was that, uh, the hope but not necessarily the expectation, was that China's interests would converge more with the United States, right? There's this great uh, Council on Foreign Relations study in 1995 that Jim Shin led called Weaving the Net that basically said, weave the net, pull China in, you know, as it thinks of itself less is it of a developing country and more of a developed country, and as its economic, political, and security interests grow uh, as part of being a rising China, that U.S. and Chinese interests on critical questions will converge more than they diverge, even though we'll still disagree about things like Taiwan. That was the hope. It didn't turn out that way. That's why I agree with you, Kirk. And so I don't think there was anybody in adopting a policy of integration that was particularly naive. It's just they made a bet. Now, the question was, did people sort of uh, reevaluate that bet quickly enough? Now, we can debate about that, but I think that that assumption, when that assumption was made and driving policy, it was a reasonable, a reasonable assumption. I think we've clearly reached the point where uh, it's not applicable and we need to reassess uh, how to deal with a rising China that's looking at pushing the boundaries, looking at the US in competitive, uh, much more competitive terms.
1: Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit because we we have had that reassessment take place over the last two years with right. the Trump administration. You not only worked for President Obama, but you also spent some time on the Bush National Security Council as well. Bush
2: Treasury Department, right? Bush
1: Treasury Department. Right, okay. With
2: Secretary Paulson.
1: Got it. But um as what you just described, there was some continuity of thinking, at least in in China policy through the the successive administrations. But this this has been a departure and a, a hardening. And we can go through all the different steps between uh the, the trade war and and other kind of rhetorical steps. But you know, kind of give us a sense of where we are and what the what the end game
2: is. I mean, given that it's January 1st and we're reflecting on the last 40 years, what's what's notable and often forgotten about China policy over the last 40 years is uh, the degree of commonality among eight or nine presidents over that 40-year period. In other words, policymakers from Republican and Democratic administrations going back to 1979 uh, made a series of bets on engaging China, integrating China into the international system, and and they they thought that the bet was turning out reasonably well. Now, one thing that I often believe gets misunderstood is the notion that U.S. policy was, quote, engagement. U.S. policy hasn't been exclusively engagement with China since the 1980s. Following the Taiwan Straits crisis in the mid-1990s, U.S. policy took on... Uh, different dimensions. So it's it's not that engagement was abandoned. It was that engagement was matched with strategies of integration, pulling China into institutions to yeah, try a, and bind them. It's interesting you say that
1: because the current narrative is that everyone who came before us was naive and
2: they got uh, right. sold
1: a bill of goods. Right. right.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at basically beginning in the 90s uh, and, you know, this is when, you know, a young DOD staffer Otherwise known as Kurt Campbell came on the scene of US policymaking. You 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 have people thinking about China policy not just as engagement, but as integration and binding, but also security balancing. And that's when you begin to have things like the NI initiative, beefing up US alliances in the region, because policymakers were thinking, wow, maybe these bets on you know, the pacifying effects of international integration. And economic integration of China aren't turning out exactly how we thought.
0: So, last question, Evan, and then we'll get more to this in our in our next episode. But so we got a we got a new president, President Trump, and an Asian policy that in many ways looks discontinuous from the past. Can you weave this into a longer history? Can you tell a story about how this is a logical next step, or do you see this as completely alien and foreign to? strategies and approaches that, you know, uh, statesmen and strategists have pursued for the last 40 years.
2: Well, I think the best way to weave it in is to think about it in terms of China presenting a variety of challenges to the United States economic, diplomatic and military and that the Trump administration uh, recognizing these started to alter U.S. policy, to put competition ahead of cooperation, to place much greater emphasis on security balancing and less on traditional diplomatic engagement. I mean, one of the most notable things about the Trump policy, which I think is a weakness, is they basically let all the major communication channels between the U.S. and China atrophy because they believe that communication is a sign of weakness, mm. um, which, uh, which I just fundamentally disagree with. I mean, yes, talk can be an excuse for not making progress, and it's incumbent upon the U.S. to prevent that from happening, but communicating you know, on a variety of challenges
0: is always going to be essential to the U.S.-China relationship. Evan, thank you so much for sitting down with us. It's been fascinating we want to remind our listeners that this is just part one of a two-part series. On the next episode, we will continue the conversation with Evan, and we're going to hear from him on China's changing role within Asia and learning about his own personal background and how he became interested in Asia and China. So Evan, thank you for giving us so much of your time. Yeah, Evan, we're really looking forward to continuing the conversation. There's a lot to,
1: uh, to cover. Great to be with you. Uh, uh, thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, as 2019 begins, we wish you a happy and healthy new year.